Hello, everyone. Welcome to this special event to launch Robert Palberg's new book, Resetting the Table, Straight Talk About the Food We Grow and Eat. Thank you for joining this event. We'd like to hear from you. To participate in our Q&A session that will follow the speaker's remarks, please submit your questions on ifpre.org, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or by using the hashtag AskIfPRI on Twitter. I'm Rajul Pandya Loge, and as Robert's former student at Wellesley College and a longtime follower and admirer of Robert's extensive work examining agricultural and food policies around the world, I'm delighted to be moderating this event. Robert, as many of you know, has been professor of political science at Wellesley Co College, which is where I know him and adjunct professor of public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. He is an associate at Harvard's Weatherhead Center. The book being launched today is his 10th book. And in my humble opinion, it is his most timely and courageous book. He offers an evidence-based critique of our food production and consumption systems. He challenges important perceptions and emerging myths and he offers viable solutions for improving our food systems to benefit people's planet, our people's health and planetary health. And it is a very readable and engrossing book. Don't wait too long to buy your hard copy or to download your Kindle version. It is well worth it. With that, let me hand over to you, Robert, for the introductory remarks. Over to you, thank you. Well, wonderful. Uh, thank you, Rajul, for the kind introduction. It's great to see you uh, back at IFPRI, and thanks for helping me uh, launch my new book. I was pleased to see on Sunday that the New York Times book review uh, listed my book as one of the new and noteworthy titles uh, out there. Uh, so I hope that this, uh, this launch uh, helps, uh, helps it get a wider audience. I first got the idea of writing a book like this uh, some time ago. It was actually back in, in 2008 uh, when I was attending a, a seminar on sustainable food at, uh, at Harvard University. Uh, the, the three panelists included a celebrity restaurateur from the San Francisco Bay Area and a playwright from New York and the, the young leader of the slow food movement uh, in the United States. And it did not take them long to reach uh, a lockstep conclusion that uh, we would only have a sustainable food system in the future if it was organic and local and slow uh, rather, than, rather than, than fast. So this was a, a jarring conclusion uh, from my perspective because I just returned from a research trip to, to rural Uganda, where I had been uh, interviewing farmers, women farmers, uh, and they didn't realize it, uh, but they were living an extreme version of, of the Harvard dream. Their food was de facto organic because they couldn't afford to buy any nitrogen fertilizer. Uh, it was certainly local uh, because in the rainy season, nothing could travel very far over, over the rutted uh, uh, dirt roads. And it was painfully slow. Uh, these women had to plant the maize, um, weed the maize, harvest the maize, then uh, strip the maize, uh, 
soak the maize, dry the maize, pound the maize, and then they had to walk to gather firewood and water to, uh, to make porridge for their, uh, for their family. And even with all those efforts, uh, too many of, of their children were poorly nourished. So uh, I, I, I'm pushing back against the, the easy solutions to food system problems that we too uh, often uh, encounter uh, in this book, which is why uh, the subtitle of the book is a straight talk about the food that we grow and eat. I can only summarize a, a very small part of my argument here, but start by taking a look at the food system of the United States. The food system in the United States is undeniably broken. Uh, it's, and it's not because of hunger. Hunger is no longer our number one uh, food problem. Our number one food problem is dietary excess and imbalance. Since the 1960s, uh, the prevalence of obesity among American adults has tripled. Uh, currently, um, an incredible 42% of adult Americans are, are clinically obese. This brings a, a growing burden of chronic disease, including type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, heart attack, uh, stroke. Um, and the pandemic uh, has not... Uh, has not brought this problem under control at all. It's added an interlude of acute food insecurity uh, to our basic dietary health crisis, but it hasn't ended that crisis. In fact, people who are sequestered at home day after day after day, only a few feet away from their refrigerator, will probably see their diets uh, worsen as a result. I checked uh, yesterday and sales of frozen pizza in the United States are up by as much as 50%. Uh, compared to uh, a year ago. This is not a pathway to, uh, to dietary health. There are a lot of popular remedies for America's dietary health problems, but when I look at them, I find that, uh, in fact, most of them will make our problem worse. I can run through several of them very quickly. One is organic food, the second is local food, the third is ending farm subsidies, and the fourth is eliminating food deserts. Moving toward organic food, uh, stop and think about it. Uh, organically grown fruits and vegetables cost on average 54% more than conventionally grown fruits and vegetables. If we shifted to an organic food system, uh, low income Americans, those who are on a budget, who already don't eat enough fresh fruits and vegetables would be able to afford uh, even less and their dietary outcomes would, would worsen. Uh, likewise with local food. If we relocalized our, our food system, the availability of fresh fruits and vegetables in the marketplace would, would go down, particularly in the cold winter months for those of us living in the Northern latitudes here in the United States. Currently, the United States actually has more fresh fruits and, and, and vegetables available on a per capita basis in the marketplace than ever before. We have, we, on a per capita basis, we have 14 times as much broccoli available in the, in the supermarket today as we did in 1970. Uh, and this is, not everybody avails themselves of that choice, but this I think is a positive benefit. And it comes largely from the fact that our food system is no longer local. We, uh, we truck uh, fresh produce across the country from California and we import it from from abroad, from the Southern Hemisphere in the winter months and from the tropics year round. In the United States today, we import 50% of our food consumption 
and one third of our fresh vegetable consumption. If we eliminated those imports to relocalize our food system, uh, the, the availability of healthy foods in the marketplace would go down instead of up. Our food system isn't relocalizing in any case. Uh, since uh, 1990, the percent of our food that's imported from abroad has increased from 11% to 90%. I should say it isn't becoming that much more organic either. The organic share of harvested cropland in the United States after two decades of heavy promotion for organics is, uh, is still only about 1%, only 2% of farm sales in the United States are organically grown products. A third non-solution would be to eliminate farm subsidies. Some advocates say, well, farm subsidies make uh, energy dense, obesity inducing foods like, like uh, corn and soybeans artificially inexpensive. But uh, the agricultural economists, including those at IFPRI will tell you otherwise. The purpose of subsidies, the purpose of farm subsidies is to increase the income of farmers. And the easiest way to do that is to drive up the price of commodities. We do that for corn. With, uh, with a renewable fuel standard that mandates the use of one third of our corn crop for automobile fuel, making the rest of it artificially expensive for consumers. We push up the price of sugar by keeping uh, cheap foreign sugar out of our market with a tariff rate quota. So sugar in the US is 64% 64 more expensive than it is on the world market. We keep wheat prices up by renting cropland from wheat farmers in Western Kansas uh, and telling them they can't grow any wheat for 10 years. So that's a bogus solution. The final solution that people talk about is eliminating food deserts. That's uh, uh, communities, especially in, in poor neighborhoods that may not have uh, adequate access to supermarkets. This is a popular, a popular suggestion, but it's, it's one that doesn't stand up to, uh, to scrutiny. Economists have looked at this and they found that if you add a supermarket to a neighborhood that didn't have one, uh, the, the convenience of buying food uh, increases, but the foods that people buy don't change very much. Our problem with obesity isn't an absence of access to supermarkets. It's being surrounded all day long by unhealthy foods. Our problem isn't food deserts, it's food swamps. And that's not just unhealthy foods from fast food restaurants and convenience stores and, and corner bodegas. It's unhealthy foods from supermarkets. Uh, the, uh, the consumer packaged goods in supermarkets all too often have uh, too much salt, too much sugar, too much fat, and they're ultra processed. So, uh, so they go down so fast, uh, our stomach uh, doesn't have time to tell the brain that it's had enough, so we overeat. I, account, I recount uh, a fascinating experiment in my book about, uh, about the results of, of overeating because of fast eating uh, linked to ultra processed products. So uh, what, uh, what I uh, focus on for countries like the United States is a, a series of, of interventions that could address these problems. I look at uh, excise taxes on sugar-sweetened beverages, uh, front-of-package nutrition guidance, and, um, and restrictions on the advertising of junk food to children. In Europe, 18 countries have embraced at least one of these policies uh, nationally, and obesity rates in Europe are only one half as high as they are in the United States. At the federal level in the United States, we have not embraced, embraced any one of these policies. So that's the policy agenda I would suggest starting with. But uh, very quickly, when I turn to food systems in developing countries uh, in, in my book, 
I find some of these same problems, but in large parts of the developing world, the problems are, are very different. Um, uh, citizens are still trapped, struggling with uh, inadequate access to food, with inadequate consumption of food rather than excessive food consumption. Look at Ethiopia, 80 to 85% of Ethiopians are farmers or, or herdsmen. And they have inadequate access to food in part because their work as farmers is so non-productive. And that's because they don't have access to any of the things that farmers in the rest of the world have used to increase their productivity and, and escape poverty. They don't have improved seeds. They don't have veterinary medicine. They don't have electricity. They don't have irrigation. They don't have uh, electricity. They don't have mechanized power. Uh, and so 10% uh, of, of Ethiopians are, are still uh, acutely undernourished. Rural Ethiopia is actually a genuine food desert. Uh, most households in rural Ethiopia live more than two kilometers from the nearest all-weather road, and they live 11 kilometers from the nearest weekly market. So they're forced to grow most of the food they consume themselves, and that gives them no time to do anything else, and their productivity is so low they don't produce enough food. Uh, in, in my book, I use countries like Ethiopia to illustrate the importance of public infrastructure investments and agricultural technology upgrades uh, in, in agriculture. Now, you would think that, uh, that this would be an uncontroversial suggestion, but uh, using modern technology in farming has become surprisingly controversial, and the new, the new preference among many advocacy organizations, and even now within the United Nations system, is to avoid what's dismissed as industrial agriculture and uh, promote agroecology instead. Uh, Agroecological methods try to uh, imitate nature. They, they avoid monocultures, they recycle nutrients, uh, they, they minimize the use of, of um, purchased external uh, inputs. Now, I endorse uh, one form of agroecology, it's called sustainable agricultural intensification, which adds precision to the use of water and, and fertilizer. But I don't see uh, the more extreme versions of agroecology uh, scaling up anywhere. They can work at the project level, but there aren't any countries in the world that have yet uh, fed their people and uh, increased the income of their farmers using uh, agroecology. Um, Cuba is one country where agroecology advocates have claimed success but I show uh, that Cuba's own official data tell a very different story. Uh, per capita food production index in Cuba today is 37% lower than it was in 1990. Uh, four fifths of the items in Cuba's national food basket have to be imported. And in, in 2019, uh, the government of Cuba had to initiate rationing for uh, chicken, eggs, beans, and, and rice. So um, I guess my message is uh, be careful uh, when, you're, when you're encountering popular solutions to, uh, to alleged food system problems. Uh, look, look under the curtain and judge for yourself if these are real solutions or not. Let me stop there. I'm out of time. I look forward to, uh, to some questions. Thank you very much, Robert, for your introductory remarks. You promised a straight talk and you gave us straight talk. For our global audience, I'd like to remind all of you who are tuning in live that you can submit your questions 
to Robert and the panel on ifpri.org, on Facebook, on LinkedIn, YouTube, or by using the hashtag AskIfpri on Twitter. We'll be coming to the Q&A session soon. Let me turn now to our two commentators. Our first commentator is Claudia Ringler. Claudia is the Deputy Director for the Environment and Production Technology Division at IFPRI. And Claudia, we look forward to your remarks. Over to you. Yeah, thank you very much. And again, for the invitation to comment on this really excellent book. So really, congratulations, uh, Robert. Uh, not only on being an excellent book, but also a very timely book, given this year's UN Food Systems Summit, as well as the Climate Change COP26 that aims to focus, among others, on a just rural transition. Do we need another book, given that we are buried in documents and webinars leading up to the Food Systems Summit this year? Very much so, because we really suffer from large awareness and knowledge gaps when it comes to agriculture and nutrition. And Robert's book, brings the evidence across through really great stories without sounding academic. The rapid downward path in the share of the global population that is undernourished has ended. While in 1970, 36% of the global population was undernourished, this fell to 11% by 2018, but absolute numbers have been growing over the last six or seven years already. Globally, a similar number of people is obese and 2 billion people or so lack adequate access to micronutrients. There's a real problem as Robert has, has already uh, told us um, very clearly. At the same time, our planetary health suffers incredibly from deforestation, growing land and water degradation, air pollution and climate change. So both nutritional and environmental challenges are worsening. But the communities supporting nutrition and those trying to save the planet do not tend to talk with each other, nor support each other, as Robert elegantly explains. Resetting the table describes both clearly and convincingly key innovations that have made a traumatic difference for environmental health and also have traumatic scope for expansion. At the heart of these are modern seed technologies that have made a traumatic difference for food security and have saved millions of hectares of forest land every year. The latest gene editing advances are improving the nutrient value, values of our foods dramatically while fighting climate change. However, these innovations dramatically lack investments. And as Robert describes, sometimes, quite often actually, consumer support. During 2011 to 16, countries invested an average of only 0.73% of the agriculture gross domestic product in agriculture research globally. Low-income countries did much worse, spending only 0.35% on developing essential technologies, even so that the need is largest there, as Robert told us. Precision agricultural technologies also have huge scope for the developing world, reducing emissions and supporting production in a very rapidly drying world. The book is more critical, as Robert says, of some farming systems that play more to nostalgia and do not minimize emissions nor deforestation. He already mentioned organic farming, agroecological some agroecological practices, and localization of food. But others, of course, such as minimum till, integrated soil fertility management, integrated pest management, agroforestry systems, community-based natural resource management, and others are integral to our environmental and food security. And the key is really to bring these together. What does meat have to do with it? Animal source foods are, con are basically the largest contributors to our environmental degradation, but at the same time, they are essential for nutrition. And if consumed in excess, cause poor health. 
an area where planetary health and nutrition can see eye to eye. Unfortunately, there's a long way to go. A recent poll of more than 1 million people in 50 countries on the climate emergency asked for support of 18 interventions to address the crisis. Among these, forest conservation, increased use of renewable energy and climate-friendly farming techniques found most support, while the promotion of plant-based diets was the least popular. But resetting the table is clear that even here, action might precede talking. It finds that over the past decade, investors have put more than $16 billion into plant-based and cell-cultured meat companies, almost all of it just in the last two years. And just three months ago, Singapore has given regulatory approval for the world's first clean meat, cultured chicken nuggets, unfortunately nuggets, <laughs> but still cultured, that do not come from slaughtered animals. This breakthrough will truly change the environmental footprint of food production. Cultured proteins might not just assuage the environmental conscience of the rich for which they're being produced right now, but with radical production cost declines can make a traumatic difference in humanitarian settings and ensure that undernutrition pockets characterized by poor access to animal source foods are eliminated. What would I ask Robert to write more about or differently? I would of course like to see a larger focus on low and middle income countries where eco-modern farming practices are accelerating and communities have started addressing poor consumption outcomes. I would also like to see more analysis on the distributional environmental impacts of farm subsidies, not all of the conclusions in the book uh, I would agree with. But as written, it is already a primer for anyone who is looking for insights and solutions of how to better farm, which is really not many of us today and fewer tomorrow, despite its existentiality and how to better eat, which truly affects everyone. Thank you very much, Robert. Claudia, thank you very much for your remarks. Robert, we know the topic of your 11th book, so get ready. Our second discussant is Rob Bertram. Rob is Chief Scientist in the Bureau for Resilience and Food Security at the United States Agency for International Development, USAID. Rob, we look forward to your remarks, over to you. Good morning, everyone, and thank you, Rajul. And uh, I'm going to join Claudia in congratulating Professor Parberg on a, a wonderful and timely book, um, both in respect to the Food Systems Summit, but I would argue also with respect to the COVID impacts, which have, again, put hunger and malnutrition and undernutrition back center stage in the global development dialogue. I want to pick up on the theme in your book, Rob, about um, anti-science especially in non-evidence-based assertions about agriculture when projected onto development context. Some of the same dynamics ensue, but the human stakes are much higher and much more urgent even, one could argue, with, with hunger, child stunting, and extreme poverty that accompanies them uh, uh, just uh, still at very high levels. We know there's 100 million more pe people driven into extreme poverty because of COVID. We still have 20%, 145 million ch children stunted, a marker for chronic food insecurity. And we know that a majority of those people depend one way or another on agriculture for their livelihoods. And many of them are located in, in uh, rural areas, as, as Rob mentioned. And, and the, they, their problem is no choice of food, not poor choice of food, as, as, he, as he eloquently points out. The stakes are also high because 
the, the opportunities in agriculture are so critical to reducing that poverty and to improving the situation around undernutrition. The World Bank's Harvesting Prosperity Study tells us that agricultural growth is up to four times more effective in reducing extreme poverty in the poorest countries. So if we take new genetics, GMOs, gene-edited crops, if we take those off the table in places like Sub-Saharan Africa, we, it's like taking a good portion of the tools out of our toolbox as we try to solve a tremendous and, and uh, existential problem for, for hundreds of millions of people. And these are the same tools that can help smallholders cope not only with pests and diseases, but with climate change. And this is playing out in real time, Rajul. We know fall armyworm was introduced a few years ago into Africa. It's now all the way to China and Australia. It's causing 10% maize crop lost in Africa. Uh, that's as much as locusts, but it doesn't get the same kinds of headlines. Now, in South Africa, smallholder farmers can plant GM maize. It's safe. It's environmentally friendly. They don't have to spray pesticides. They're not losing anything. Their neighbors to the north, unfortunately, they have no choice. They, they, those GM seeds are not available to them. So they are left to rely on toxic pesticides, uh, big crop losses, much higher levels of aflatoxin contamination. And remember, 10% doesn't sound like an overwhelming number, but if it's your field, it can be 50% or 70%. So the, these things are not one, it's not the same everywhere. Um, the enhanced tolerance to drought is another trait that will stay on the shelf if, 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 if policies don't change and if anti-science biases don't change. And this is uh, uh, synthetic fertilizers. Uh, this is, uh, Rob talks about this, even those that are made of naturally occurring compounds uh, that are that composed of those, they are also off limits in the view of some purists in the agroecological movement. This is essentially a make or break issue for Africa's ability to adapt to climate change. Are higher levels of organic matter and improved soil fertility, are they must-haves for Africa's soils and wider economic growth future? Yes. Will that happen without synthetic pesticides? No, it won't. And I'm sorry, without synthetic fertilizers, I misspoke. Both are needed to achieve environmentally, environmental climate change, economic growth and nutrition goals. But the problem in Africa is too little, not too much fertilizer. So this is why not seeing, we need to think about global challenges, yes, but local approaches that reflect local conditions. So how do we bring these issues around ag growth uh, together with diet quality and nutrition? And I think there's more good news here because we know that agricultural diversification is a critical pathway out of poverty, especially in as Claudius said, vegetables and fruits, animal source foods, dairy, eggs, and fish. And this is a means by which smallholder families can lift themselves up. And it's also a means of supplying nutritious foods to low-income people in both rural and urban settings and getting at some of the issues like micronutrient deficiency. We still know that iron deficiency anemia affects up to 50% of women and children in some regions. And this has gotten worse again with COVID because these value chains are disproportionately affected. But if governments were to insist that this be done through organic approaches, meaning no fertilizer and no safe use of plant protection strategies, smallholder small farmers in Africa will not be able to tap into the demands and meet the demands of cities and towns. 
They, they will, it, this will leave a huge poverty reducing and nutrition improving pathway towards the future off the table. We'd be shutting off huge opportunities for linking urban growth to rural poverty reduction where poverty and child stunting are most concentrated. And, and this would dial back our, our real poverty reducing growth. So I think Africa's poverty reduction goals, its nutrition goals would suffer. And in the face of the climate change, these stakes are all the much higher. Again, due to perhaps well-intentioned, but not ultimately evidence-based assertions around agriculture and food systems. Thank you. Rob, thank you so much for your comments. Uh, before we come to the Q&A portion of the program, and again, I'd like to remind our global audience tuning in live, please do submit your questions so that we can have a chance to address them. I would like to give Robert a chance to reflect on the comments of Claudia and Rob, uh, two or three minutes, and then we'll come to the Q&A session. So over to you, Robert. Great, thank you very much. And thanks, uh, Claudia, and thanks, uh, uh, Rob. Uh, uh, Claudia noticed uh, that my treatment of farm subsidies was at best uh, incomplete. I'd like to add uh, an element uh, or two. Uh, farm subsidies don't make us fat, but that doesn't make me a fan of farm subsidies. They're, they're mostly unnecessary. In the United States, only 2% of farm households are now living below the poverty line compared to 14% of all households. So uh, why are we sending uh, billions of dollars, actually tens of billions of dollars in the last year or two uh, to farmers? Uh, I, I'm not a big fan of, of farm subsidies. Uh, also, most of the subsidies go to the largest of these farmers who have the highest net worth and the highest income. Uh, Rob Bertram, uh, uh, thanks a lot for your uh, endorsement of, of science forward uh, uh, options. I'm, I'm for those as well, uh, obviously. But if you, wanted, if you wanna do something while staying away from biotechnology or chemicals, uh, there's still plenty of other things you can do. One option that I would like to see uh, come out of the, uh, the Food Systems Summit for Africa would be much larger investments in in irrigation, especially using groundwater. Groundwater resources in Africa are essentially untapped. They're, they're abundant and they're essentially untapped. I've seen analyses coming out of South Africa that show you could increase irrigated area in Sub-Saharan Africa by 20% without coming close to the environmental limits of, of recharging uh, underground uh, aquifers. This would be a multi-purpose uh, investment. It would, it would allow farmers to grow high-value crops with a guarantee of, of water. It would, it would provide an irrigation backstop in the event of, of drought. It would, um, it, would also, it would also be valuable for, for women who are often tasked with walking to bring uh, in water, and it would make a huge contribution to, to health and, and hygiene. Uh, so uh, I don't know why uh, we aren't making larger investments in, uh, in, in groundwater in Africa. I'd like to see the Food Systems Summit uh, announce uh, a new project co-funded by the United States Agency for International Development 
and the People's Republic of China operated through the Republic of South Africa to and finally invest in irrigation for smallholder households in Sub-Saharan Africa. Robert, thank you. I'm sure ears are perking up on that proposal that you put forward. We have a number of questions coming in, and that is excellent, and keep them coming in. And let me take a question at a time, and um, they're coming in from different parts of the world. So question number one is for Robert. And Robert, you're offering straight talk towards the end of your book to America's commercial farmers. And with the change in the U.S. administration last month, what straight talk would you offer to U.S. policymakers, and what straight straight talk would you offer to consumer advocates? Over to you, Robert. Uh, okay, um, in in the United States, uh, we are currently, uh, because of the pandemic, uh, focused correctly on new safety net systems to reduce food insecurity among those who have temporarily lost their jobs, lost their income, lost their access to school meals, lost their access to, um, to food service at places of work or restaurants. Uh, we are scrambling uh, to, uh, to help people uh, avoid uh, food insecurity in the short run. But I would hope uh, as we move through the pandemic and as we merge emerge on the other side, I would hope that the Biden administration would, uh, would focus just as much or even more on the underlying problem of unbalanced and excessive eating leading to chronic disease and poor dietary health. And I think uh, to do this, uh, it might be necessary not just to uh, introduce soda taxes in front of package nutrition labeling and restrictions on advertising junk food to children. I think there are things that could be done with some of our USDA programs. We've expanded the SNAP program uh, dramatically in response to the current crisis, and I'm glad we did. But we haven't yet been able to introduce any nutrition targeting into the SNAP program. There was, uh, I think, an important proposal that came out of the Bipartisan Policy Center here in Washington, D.C. during the last Farm Bill to remove sugar-sweetened beverages from eligibility for purchase in the SNAP program, not to reduce the dollar value of the benefit by one bit, but uh, to make sugar-sweetened beverages no longer eligible for purchase. Unfortunately, that proposal was, was blocked from, from the right by the beverage industry, and it was blocked from the left by advocacy organizations that were that first formed in the 1970s in response to America's uh, hunger crisis. They didn't want any changes at all to, to the SNAP program. I think, uh, I think the Biden administration needs to, needs to bring U.S. nutrition policies uh, out of the 1970s. Uh, when we when we had only half or fewer people who were who were clinically obese, and when we had large populations, especially in rural America, that were in serious hunger before we expanded the SNAP program, we need to bring our policies out of that era into a modern era and face the modern challenges. Robert, thank you very much. We have several questions that have come in on the issue of subsidies. And this is a question from Nathan McMillan from the US, where he asks, could you expand on the issue of subsidy reform a little more? 
Eliminating subsidies, as you say, is a non-solution, both economically and politically. What about reform, restructuring of subsidies to more robustly cover fruits uh, and uh, vegetables? And let me connect that, Robert, to another question also on subsidies that is coming in, on why not shift some subsidies from corn and sugar to fresh or even local or organic fruits and vegetables in the US. So combined questions on subsidies for you, Robert, over to you. Okay, great, those are, those are great questions. Thank you very much. Uh, the US Department of Agriculture has subsidized local food, uh, especially in the Obama administration, and I suspect this will come back in the Biden administration. The Obama administration had a, a Know Your Farmer, Know Your Food program, and it, it poured, um, several billions of dollars into local food marketing uh, infrastructure, training of farmers markets, uh, managers. Uh, it was a serious program uh, championed by uh, leadership inside USDA uh, and by First Lady Michelle Obama to, uh, to promote uh, local food. As I say, um, it, it hasn't it hasn't really moved the needle very much so far. Only 1% of farm sales made in the United States are made through farmer's markets or CSAs or roadside stands or pick your own or farm to school or farm to table restaurants or local food hubs. Uh, it turns out that, that America's consumers uh, find those ways of getting food to be sometimes inconvenient or, or choice limiting. Um, because you can't get all the fresh fruits and vegetables you want in the winter months through those uh, channels. And if you go to a farmer's market, fine, in season, you're still gonna have to make another trip to other markets to buy the things that local farms don't grow, the paper products, the dairy products and whatever. So um, uh, I don't see a lot of promise in, in, in promoting uh, local food, frankly. I think it's, it's great, I think it's, it's important for local communities to support their own local farmers, uh, but I'm not sure that it's the government's job to try to relocalize our food system when we face a dietary crisis over inadequate consumption of fruits and vegetables and we can't grow those products everywhere locally. On the, on the question of fruits and vegetables and, and farm subsidies, this is, this is, everyone says, oh, we shouldn't subsidize corn and soybeans, we should subsidize fresh fruits and vegetables. But remember the point I made, uh, the way we subsidize growers of corn and, and, and soybeans has been to, uh, to make those products artificially expensive, not artificially cheap, especially with our, our renewable fuel standard, which diverts corn into, into fuel production. And that drives up not just the price of corn, but the price of soybeans as well, because they're grown on the same land. If we if we used the subsidy policies we're now using for corn, soybeans, wheat, sugar, and dairy products for fresh fruits and vegetables, the price of fresh fruits and vegetables would be driven up and not down. Uh, it's, um, it goes against intuition. Everyone assumes, oh, a subsidy. A subsidy is to the product. No, it's to the income of the farmer. And that usually entails increasing the price of the product. Thank you, Robert. 
I'll also direct the next question to you. And then thereafter, Claudia and Rob, be ready because I'll direct the following question to the two of you. But Robert, this question comes in from Jeanette Tramhell of OAS. And uh, Jeanette asks, isn't one of the problems that we don't put nearly the same level of research dollars into agroecology versus industrial agriculture? Any comment on that? the support of funding for agri agroecological research versus industrial research. Right. No, that's a that's an interesting comment. And uh, I suppose it's a uh, it's it's an unresolved issue. What would happen if we invested uh, more in agroecology? But, you know, we have put quite a bit of money into agroecology project by project um, around the world. The United Nations system now is investing heavily in a scaling up agroecology program. They've held several global agroecology summits. Um, many uh, European donors in particular have devoted significant portions of their assistance budgets to uh, projects that uh, pursue uh, agroecological visions. We've, we've not We've not exactly ignored it, uh, but uh, too often the, the research that's done uh, on the research station or at the project level uh, results in something that appears to work as long as you have a captured labor force. But when you try to move it onto farmers' uh, fields, they're, they're not so interested. My first encounter with all this was back in the 1990s when I visited the International Institute of Tropical Agriculture in, in Nigeria, and they were promoting something called alley cropping, which was an agroecological technique. Uh, farmers didn't have enough fertilizer for their maize. So the thought was, well, you can, you can plant rows of leguminous trees that will fix nitrogen in the soil, and you can plant the maize between those rows of leguminous trees, and you won't have to buy fertilizer. Uh, soil fertility will be maintained through a natural uh, process. It worked fine uh, at the research station where you had plenty of labor to prune the trees. But uh, when uh, they offered this solution to farmers, farmers learned that, uh, well, you had to be pruning the trees all the time or else they would, they would shade uh, the maize and the maize wouldn't grow. And uh, I asked, well, has this, has this scaled up anywhere? And people told me, yeah, there's a, there's a district in, in northern Benin where farmers have spontaneously uh, taken to planting trees in rows. So I decided to go see for myself. And I took a, a somewhat laborious trip and I found this local community. And sure enough, they were planting trees in rows, but they weren't leguminous trees. They were palm trees that didn't have to be pruned. And uh, palm trees weren't, weren't benefiting uh, the farmers by fixing nitrogen, uh, but you could tap them for palm wine. And so these farmers were making good use of trees, but not in the way the agroecologists had, had imagined. Uh, too often uh, when we design agroecology solutions, they, they resemble hand gardening with, um, with, with no powered uh, machinery. Uh, and that leaves all of um, the burden on farmers uh, to, to manage uh, the field uh, on an almost continuous basis. And farmers don't have all the time in the world. And if you give them 
uh, a little bit of fertilizer. And if you give them a little bit of irrigation and a little bit of improved seeds, uh, uh, they, they don't want to go back to hand gardening very often. Robert, thank you so much. This next question I want to direct to Rob Bertram and to Claudia. And this is actually a question coming out from Robert's own uh, reflections on your remarks. I know the topic of groundwater irrigation is very dear to Claudia's heart. And Rob, Robert made a specific proposal, including uh, uh, calling on USAID and so forth. But I know that these are topics you have also been working on. So let me ask you, any reflections back on Rob's points about irrigation and groundwater and proposals for way forward. Very brief one minute remarks from each of you beginning with Rob and then Claudia. Thank you, Rajul, and for that question. And uh, I think this comes back to one of the fundamental aspects of what we're trying to do under Safe Feed the Future. And that is most smallholder farming systems are deeply undercapitalized with respect to irrigation, roads, storage, many things that uh, transport, all kinds of things that hold uh, people back and, 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 and uh, depress growth. So Rob, I totally agree with you. And I've been very fortunate to work with Claudia and others at Texas A&M and elsewhere in the CGIR these last years on the small scale irrigation issue in Sub-Saharan Africa, where we know irrigation has not anywhere near reached its potential. But there are a lot of issues there. Claudia can speak to those better than I, but, but the, the other point to make in connection with that is what we see with this small-scale irrigation are not huge irrigated fields. We see people investing in goats, chickens, a vegetable garden through the dry season that they can both eat and sell. And, 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 and so it's a, it's a game changer for people and it allows them to start to accumulate wealth, improve their nutrition and income. And, and the other piece of that last point is, these are all knowledge intensive crops. So you're absolutely right. There's a lot besides fertilizer, and biotech and such. The, 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 the capital like this, the smallholder friendly capital and also the knowledge uh, that comes along with trying to make best use of that capital are critical objectives for us. Thank you, Rob. Claudia, over to you. Yeah. I mean, just to at first, I really didn't feed, feed that idea to Robert. <laughs> I was like stunned, like I guess everyone else. I, I mean, obviously, yes, it's really one of a key solution, especially for Sub-Saharan Africa, where exactly we have seen this undercapitalization of, you know, agriculture intensification. So, and we actually see two types of um, small-scale irrigation right now. The one that probably focuses more agroecological approaches where people dig dig their wells by hand, they use buckets, um, and they use so many labor hours that they can't expand the area. You still get nutrition, you still uh, can sell uh, some of the crops, but the, the areas will always stay very small, but as long as you have to do it all by hand, there's no electricity, there is you know, uh, difficult to get other inputs to support um, irrigated products. And then what USAID um, actually has, is already trying to do is to see how we get can get farmers additional knowledge and access to more advanced technologies, solar, groundwater pumps, um, and, you know, motor pumps to to really intensify those irrigated areas and to actually, you know, make them profitable and, and accelerate a nutrition revolution because it's really largely used for 
um, nutritious crops, um, vegetables, fruits, but also sometimes irrigated fodder. So yes, there's huge potential. And uh, but as Rob says, you know, nothing comes without <laughs> a challenge. There is, despite those very large groundwater reserves, and we can we can increase area by at least 20 million hectares um, irrigated area in Sub-Saharan Africa. There are challenges because in some areas, obviously people will overexploit the resource. So that's why we also need to work on uh, groundwater institutions. So which is again, an area that I think needs more support and more work. But yes, it's one of the solutions together with everything else, really together with everything else that uh, Robert has described in his book. Claudia, thank you very much. Robert, the next question comes for you, uh, for you from Kiruba Krishnaswamy of the University of Missouri. Could you share your perspectives on how to bring the voices that are left behind in resetting the table? Any comments from you? Over to you. Yeah, the, the voices left behind are uh, the voices of uh, smallholder farmers in Africa frankly. Most of these, uh, most of the smallholder farmers in Africa don't have a political voice. Most are, are women. Uh, many are still illiterate, unable to read or write in any language. They're not uh, politically organized. They're distant uh, from, as I said, from paved roads and from weekly markets. They're even more distant from power centers in, in the capital city. They're, um, they're typically unarmed. <laughs> uh, these, these, are, these are markers for a political weakness. Some farmers are influential in Africa, but most often it's uh, farmers that uh, have export crops that earn foreign exchange valued by the government. The government supports those farmers to earn uh, foreign exchange. Unfortunately, the products uh, leave the country and, and the income isn't spread to, to the poorest uh, uh, food crop uh, producers in, in remote uh, rural areas. It's, uh, it's a difficult problem uh, to solve. Uh, you need, uh, and it's hard to solve the problem with uh, with massive education campaigns, if you give uh, if you give improved educational opportunities to destitute uh, farmers, uh, men or women in rural Africa, often the first thing they will do is leave rural Africa, and and flock to uh, the urban centers where there's money to be had. It's a uh, it's a difficult problem. Uh, I hope that that uh, the African leaders who are going to participate in the Food System Summit will be uh, a candid in describing it and putting it uh, uh, front and center on the table for discussion. Robert, thank you very much. There are two questions that are coming in on COVID. David H., student at UMass Boston, is asking, how do you see diet changes in the wake of the COVID pandemic impacting diets in both the developing and developed world in the future? Question of sustainability versus convenience. And the second COVID-related question is, the way in which we are 
uh, eating our food has already significantly changed in the COVID era. You mentioned in terms of people uh, having more home deliveries uh, and um, uh, eating more junk food, etc. So do you envision your central messages still holding or do you see them adjusting in light of a year of COVID and more? Over to you, uh, Robert, two questions around COVID yeah, and good diets. Questions. Good questions. And this, this requires some, some crystal balling which, uh, which I don't claim to be, to be very good at. But my guess uh, is uh, there'll be not that much change in pre-COVID diets uh, once we emerge in a, in a post-COVID world. Yes, during COVID in the United States, um, we're, we're buying a lot more food online. There are a lot more home deliveries. Uh, but that was happening even before COVID. Uh, we're, we're eating a lot more meals at home, but we're not necessarily cooking a lot more uh, meals at home. And the meals we cook at home, uh, people are baking a lot of cakes. <laughs> the meals we cook at home aren't necessarily going to uh, rebalance or discipline our, our diets. Uh, I don't think we can count on uh, COVID for a lot of long-term uh, changes in, in eating behavior in, in today's rich countries. A lot of very uh, good, small, independent neighborhood restaurants are going to go bankrupt if they haven't already because of COVID. And that will only result in a further expansion of uh, the full service national restaurant chains that uh, have contributed to the worsening of our diet. Everyone says, oh, the problem with restaurants is fast food. No, 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 no. If you go to uh, some of the full service restaurant chains, I'm not gonna name names here, uh, but if you examine their menu items, they have just as much extra sugar, salt, and fat, and the portion sizes are huge. Uh, so if those restaurants uh, take over from your, your friendly mom and pop neighborhood restaurant that went bankrupt during COVID, that's not gonna help things either. The big question mark is what are the changes going to be in the developing world? And there it's hard to say because we don't, uh, we can't so easily see uh, how this crisis is going to end in, in the developing world. We've got, we've got vaccines coming on fast in the United States and we can, we can imagine uh, that uh, within a year, most of, most of the medical uh, risks of, of the virus will be contained. We don't know yet uh, if that's going to be true. In, in Africa. I hope it's true, but I don't know that yet. Uh, the the short-term problems uh, have been much more acute in the developing world. I mean, look at India that uh, uh, had to um, had to close down uh, street markets. And people who were migrants from rural areas who were living in the cities, working uh, as day laborers without contracts, without salaries, um, lost their jobs, suddenly had no money. They had nowhere to spend that money anyway. Uh, the, the, the taxi systems and the bus systems stopped running so they couldn't get to the markets. Uh, when many of them realized there were gonna be shutdowns, they had to flee back to the countryside. Uh, and that was a perilous journey. It, it, was, um, it was a far more dramatic food system adjustment in developing countries than it was in rich countries. And it will probably be a more a more durable food system crisis in those developing countries. 
Robert, thank you very much. Let me direct the last question to you, Robert, but I also give Claudia and Rob Bertram a chance if they want to make very brief comments because the topic is on research. And this question is, what do you see as the biggest knowledge gaps as we seek to reset the table? What key issues or topics would you like researchers to work more on or differently? Or how would you like them to change the way in which they do their research? Over to you, Robert, and then Claudia and Rob, if they wish to comment also on research. Thank you. We don't yet know how to protect dietary health under circumstances of affluence and abundance. I said that uh, obesity rates in Europe are only half as high as they are in the United States. That's true, but they're higher than they used to be. Uh, we, we don't have, we don't have a, a good fix. On, and and this, is, this is a hard job for economists. Economists uh, have cut their teeth on solving scarcity problems. They're, they're a little uh, at sea when it comes to addressing abundance problems. We, uh, you know, we, we have an abundance of almost everything now in advanced industrial countries. Uh, and private companies know how to make us buy those products. Private companies sell us too many shoes, too much clothes, too much children's toys. We know that. Um, but that doesn't result in a public health crisis. When, when they start selling us too much food using the same techniques, that is a public health crisis. And we don't yet know how to deal with that crisis. I provided some, some suggestive policy remedies, uh, but they'll only get us uh, uh, so far. And this is a problem that's going to spread far beyond today's affluent societies into tomorrow's affluent societies in, in Asia. What I'd like to see come out of the Food Systems Summit, actually, is uh, uh, an agreement among global food companies to start placing restrictions on the advertisement of energy-dense junk foods and sugar-sweetened beverages to, uh, to children. We need that uh, now uh, before, before the next generation of newly affluent uh, Asians becomes as addicted to these products as we are here in the United States. Thank you, Robert. Over to Claudia. Any comments on the research agenda? Yeah, thanks. I mean, I would suggest to increasingly focus on what I would call stacked approaches. So, you know, why not combine thoughts about drought tolerant varieties, as Rob mentioned, with interventions that improve women's empowerment, really think broadly, you know, three, combine new approaches, because we know that a seed alone, even so that, you know, we are aware of traumatic uh, improvements for food security and nutrition, a seed alone is not enough nowadays. So we have to combine it with the seed, with agroecological approaches, with uh, much better community-driven and community-based institutions. And as um, Robert said, you know, go work more in the field. Research station approaches often work, but we still don't work enough with the farmers and with the farm communities to let them, you know, let them be in the driver's seat of scaling up the approaches that they find work best. And it's a combination. There's always science and evidence base has to be behind it. But, you know, then let adaptations have to be a local community driven and community based. And yeah, I, I would just call it stacked approaches and, you know, keep nostalgia and keep ideology out of the discussion because we, we are just not moving forward um, as long as these two points, uh, these two discussion uh, points 
are part of the food system summit and you know and unfortunately it's still driven by uh, too many northern um, white people at all of these summits um, and so bring let's bring in more of the south and more communities thank you thank you claudia rob over to you i think if we're thinking about planetary outcomes at one end and human outcomes at the other uh, we need to be leveraging both ends of that. So the exciting breakthrough science from NSF and others, photosynthesis, for example, nitrogen fixation. And then at the distal end, the prox near the farmers, I mean the proximate end, I should say, uh, I think better linking to the demand that's there, uh, understanding the opportunities around service provision, things that can make capitalization smallholder friendly. And in the middle, to really hone our efforts around increasing productive potential and reducing risk at the same time. That's gonna drive investment on farm and off farm. And ultimately that's what we need. Final comment, policy. There's still so much constraint on growth in developing countries and on equitable growth because of poor policy. And it's policy implementation too sometimes. It's just hard. But we know how many times a truck gets stopped from between Accra and Bobo Giolasu, 13, 14 times. So this has huge impacts on productivity and, 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 and makes everything more expensive and less efficient and less, therefore less attractive as an investment. Thank you, Rob. Colleagues, we are coming towards the end at, uh, of the session of the launch of the event. And I'd like to apologize to our global audience that I was not able to take all of your questions and comments. And uh, thank you for sending them and we'll collect them and uh, have a chance to uh, continue the dialogue in future occasions. So before I close this session, I'd like to give our three speakers few seconds for their final takeaway message. They can repeat anything they want to you to really remember or a new idea they want to put on the table. And I'll go in reverse order. I will begin with Claudia, then Rob, and give Rob Robert the final word. Claudia, your final takeaway message. Yep. Just very quickly, I would say educate and regulate. Regulate bad foods. It can be done. Robert is very, I think, pessimistic about it, but I think we, we will, we are getting closer to that than ever before. Thank you. Thank you, Rob. We talked about events in the Food Systems Summit. Let's keep undernutrition and the poor people on the agenda. It's being driven by climate and obesity in large, and those are worthy problems, but we can't forget the needs of the poor. Second, the climate change cop, it, agriculture is not nearly as visible as it should be. And so we, I think if we wanna think about a global food system and, and, and good diets for everyone. We need environment, we need climate, and we need food and agriculture seen in a single lens. Finally, on agroecology, we all should be for agroecology. It's just how we define it, visual. And it's, it's, about, it's about harmonious systems that take advantage of all the knowledge that we have. Thank you. Thank you. Robert? Well, uh, thank you to uh, Rajul, thank you to uh, Claudia, and thank you to, to Rob for participating in, in this event. Uh, one thing I want you to remember is the title of my book, uh, which is Resetting the Table, Straight Talk About the Food We Grow and Eat. Uh, I hope uh, you look into it. Uh, I cover many things in addition to the topics that we discussed today. Uh, and uh, I'll be pleased uh, to get an IFPRI audience 
an informed IFPRI audience involved in the larger discussion. So thank you very much. Thank you, Robert. Congratulations on the launch of your book. And a reminder to everyone, it's everywhere. You can find it, buy it, download it, read it, and then discuss it. Congratulations on the launch of your book. And a big thank you to you, to Claudia, and to Rob for this wonderful event, and to the audience around the world. Thank you for watching. Thank you for being part of this discourse. Thank you very much, everyone.